Hello, and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, David Busis speaks with Seven Stage consultant Tahira McCoy, the former director of missions and scholarship programs at Berkeley Law. Their conversation gives us an inside glimpse of Berkeley's admissions process and a few tips about how to get more scholarship money. Okay, here it is. Tahira, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really happy and excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I was wondering if you could start by giving us a rundown of your role, or rather your roles in the world of law school admissions. Sure, sure. So I worked in law school admissions for 10 years, um, starting out at my alma mater of Southwestern Law School. I was the admissions counselor there. Um, From there, I went to Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law. Um, I was the assistant director and director of admissions there. And from there, I became the dean of admissions at UDC David A. Clark School of Law in Washington, D.C. And then I was the director of admissions and scholarship programs at UC Berkeley's law school. Let's start with the one that you did last, Mm -hmm. which was Berkeley. Can you give us a rundown of your calendar? What were you doing when? It was very specific throughout the year. I feel like Berkeley was probably the most cyclical of the schools that I worked for. Um, Around this time of year, we were very heavily reading uh, applications for admission. In my role as director of admissions and scholarship programs, I was also responsible for reviewing all admits for potential um, incoming scholarships as well. And so um, I split my time between admissions work and scholarship review. Um, I also spearheaded different scholarship committees for some of the named awards that students can write essays for with their admissions application. Um, I also oversaw the reconsideration process starting in March, and that went until uh, April, May 1st. And so um, students would write into an email address that reached just me, and I would be in communication with them about different offers they'd received and what kind of scholarship increase requests or initial scholarship requests if they hadn't received an offer um, they were making. Once you get into May and June, it's really more about communicating with the admits who have committed to attending. Um, And let me back up for a second. In April um, or in March, depending on when everything is scheduled for that year and when spring break is and things like that, we have an admitted students weekend um, where we welcome as many admitted students as want to attend. Um, Sometimes that's over 400 students. Um, But then we get into the summer where we're talking about logistics, we're talking about housing, we're talking about um, timing of moving in, making sure that all uh, required paperwork is to the registrar, etc. We'll also be talking about the wait list over the summertime. Sometimes Berkeley doesn't touch the wait list at all. Um, Sometimes they touch it a little bit. It really depends on the year and how much movement there is at other uh, top 10 law schools. Um, That will really make the determination on whether Berkeley needs to go to the list or not. Um, It really is also dependent on the goals that have been set forth by the university, by the dean. Um, And by goals, I mean things like If there's a certain median that the school wants the admissions office to reach, if there's a certain class size, um, if there's a certain um, kind of split that they need, it, it all starts to weigh in and it's something that admissions officers think about the entire time that they're reviewing applications. But Sometimes as you go, those goals change um, or the priority in those goals change because usually I have more than one goal. 
beyond that, as you start to get into July, typically that's when you start to see if there's going to be some waitlist movement, it's probably happening around that time. Um, the dust has settled and we have a sense of if there is any money left to award, if that's going to be awarded to someone on the waitlist. Um, in July, students are also starting to register for classes and get a sense of what orientation is going to look like. August is a mad dash to orientation, to um, last institutional scholarship awards that um, I'll be looking at people for to determine, you know, is there little bits of money that we can still award to people? And often students would email and say, hey, if you discover that there's even 2000 or $5,000 more that might become available, please, you know, keep me on a list. Um, and I would keep, I maintained a list throughout the season. Um, once school starts, you know, we welcome everybody and we start the whole process again. So in the fall, we're recruiting. We are talking to students at different universities Outside of a pandemic, we would be traveling um, to schools and holding panels. Um, with the pandemic, it's all virtual. Um, and from there, you start reading applications and it starts all over again. Well, that was a great and very comprehensive overview. And I have lots of questions sure. about different parts of it. Um, but first, just a couple of takeaways. Mm -hmm. So... I was a little surprised to hear what a long tail the cycle has. I think a lot of people think that it's sort of over when you submit or maybe when you get your scholarship offer or maybe when you deposit. But it sounds like there is a lot to do until the very day and maybe even after the day that students show up on campus. Yeah, and a lot of it overlaps. And people don't realize that with admissions, there really isn't a break. Um, you know, even over Christmas... Um, the way it works at Berkeley, there's still people reading applications over the Christmas holiday, um, trying to make sure that they're getting through because the volume is massive, but the number of people in the office is not a huge number. And so they have a lot to get through. And so um, anytime students are patients, patient with the offense, we definitely appreciated it. <laughs> Okay, can we talk about the beginning of the cycle? When do you start setting goals for the next class? And how do you set those goals? So typically, the when takes place right before we start actually reading applications. And so it'll start, um, the conversation starts in the fall, um, fall semester. And it starts with the Dean of Admissions speaking to the dean and getting a sense of what it is that he hopes to achieve with this next incoming class. And so um, typically there will be goals that touch upon the class size, that touch upon um, scholarship budget, um, that touch on timing. It might touch on... Um, credentials when it comes to GPA, when it comes to median, and it might go beyond those. Like maybe they want to increase the 75th percentile. Um, they can be very granular goals. And then once you figure out what the goals are, the next thing to determine is which one is the priority. If you can only have one or two, which ones are going to be the focus? And so um, that's a conversation that typically happens on the dean level. Um, and before that conversation can happen, typically the dean has spoken to university about what they want the goals to be. Because typically class size, that's about budget. Um, scholarship amounts and increases or decreases, that's also about budget. Um, and so those things will play into things rankings can play into things. Um, it's all going to be dependent on, you know, what they want you to focus on. 
And then once the dean of admissions has that information, they will bring it back to the team. There will be a meeting to discuss it. Um, and that will inform how the team reviews applications for the cycle. The dean of admissions will continue co- continue to communicate with the team um, to let them know if they need to um, reprioritize at any point during the cycle. When do you actually start evaluating applications? As soon as they come in? No. <laughs> so um, at Berkeley... Applications would start coming in at the beginning of September. I would say um, probably three or four weeks in so that there's enough for everybody to kind of divide and start to conquer. Um, Applications, they come in pretty steady at first. Um, It's once you get into December where there's kind of an avalanche Um, You know, you have a good number of people first applying to the Binding Early Decision Program. And from there, um, once people start applying to the regular pool, and some do from jump, but it depends on what they're wanting their goals to be as far as admission. Um, it, It really runs the gambit. We always tell people if you apply before Thanksgiving, you're in a much better spot. If you wait until January, you know, typically Berkeley receives half of their application volume in January. So as soon as they start rolling in, um, or rather as soon as you start evaluating them, you're not holding back, it sounds like. It sounds like if you see a good applicant, you want to give them the thumbs up and and admit them. Yes, and we can. Um, So... There's kind of, it's on a rolling basis, Um, but admissions officers do have the right to say, you know what, I really like this candidate. They may not be as strong as some of the other candidates, so I want to see a little bit more before I make a decision on this person. And so um, there are definitely schools that will hold a candidate Um, in kind of a holding pattern so that they can see more candidates come in to get a sense of what the pool looks like before they make a decision. Do students who apply to Berkeley's ED program have an advantage? And I ask because you offer an automatic scholarship. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it may be more competitive. I don't know. It's definitely competitive. Um, I wouldn't say, well, I guess it depends. Right. It depends on what you see as the advantage for binding early decision. Yes, there's a guaranteed um, $25,000 scholarship per year that comes with an offer of admission. However, if um, you're a particularly strong candidate and you want to be able to have a lot of bargaining power, um, you may not be at an advantage in binding early decision because you are applying before typically you've gotten a bunch of offers from other schools. And if admitted, you have to immediately withdraw from everywhere else. So um, you may possibly earn a larger award not in binding early decision. Um, It's really a chance you take. Some people like the security of knowing I'm in, I have an award, I don't have to worry about it. And I know it very early in the cycle. So the people who are still waiting on pins and needles in February or even March, um, you know, that it might be worth it to some people who just want to have it over with and want to know where they're going how much they have. There are instances for additional funding for binding early decision students, but it's not typically going to be a huge jump in the amount. Um, There might be some applied for need-based aid. There might be um, the opportunity to be one of the center scholars, which usually is like a $10,000 award, Um, but it's not going to necessarily be that you can somehow um, 
negotiate a full ride. Um, Berkeley gives very few full rides to begin with. Can you talk more about the consideration process in the first place? So if I apply to Berkeley, who reads my file, first of all? Is that assigned randomly? Or do you have a reader for everybody named David? And uh, what happens after that? Is there more than one reader, et cetera? Sure. So uh, Berkeley typically has an initial read by an admissions officer and then a second read, which they consider an audit by the dean of admissions. So the dean of admissions sees every single application. Um, That initial reader could actually be the dean of admission, uh, but it could be one of the other admissions officers on the team. And so um, they'll read the application, they'll determine um, if they can render a decision, if they feel like it needs to go to the admissions committee. Um, The admissions committee at Berkeley is comprised of faculty members, people on the administrative team, um, and current students. And how do you decide whether it goes to the committee? Do you send files when it's hard to make a decision? When it's hard to make a decision, when there is um, a character and fitness issue at play, sometimes when someone is a really big splitter, um, maybe they have one um, of their numbers is really low or there's just kind of this massive gap somewhere. Um, There could also be instances where the initial reader just isn't sure and needs someone else to kind of chime in. Um, It's not a huge number of applications that goes to the committee. Uh, Most of them are done by the admissions team. Can you paint a picture for me of what it was like when you were actually reading a given file or a slew of files? Mm -hmm. I mean, are are you wearing your slippers with your feet up (laughs) on a desk, looking out the window? Um, Really, all of those details are interesting to me. Are you reading it on a computer screen? Mm -hmm. Did you print something out? What order do you read the file in, et cetera? Yeah, so it depended. Um, Sometimes we would have to read in the office, you know, because there's just no way you get to all of it on, if you have a reading day at home um, to get through all of them, at least I couldn't. Um, So sometimes I'd be in the office. Um, I would try to choose a quiet time or block off a couple hours of time that I could just focus on files. Um, I have two screens set up and I'm reading all of them on a computer. Um, It's very rare um, to print application files now. Um, And I joined admissions right when things started to go digital. So I've never had to read paper applications. Um, If I'm at home on a reading day, I'm reading them on my laptop. Um, And when I open an application, I like to first, um, I'll go to like the CAS report, just that opening page, get a sense of where the student went to school, you know, just kind of a general overview of their performance in school. Do they have additional degrees? Um, Do they receive academic honors? Um, What do their scores look like? I wouldn't say that any of those things make me think that I immediately have a decision in my mind. It just kind of gives me a backdrop Um, because that sheet also tells me, you know, how old is the applicant? So I can set some expectations as to what I want to see in the application itself. If the person has been or should have been out of school for a while, Um, then I expect to see a pretty hefty resume, things like that. So then I go over to the application itself, review the application document, see what the answers look like, see if there's anything I need to look out for as far as um, gaps in study, as far as character and fitness, 
um, et cetera. And so then I go into the personal statement, um, which I'm sure you have questions about. And Lots of them. <laughs> yes. Personal statement, diversity statement, um, any additional addenda. Um, we'll look at the resume pretty heavily. We want to get a sense of what someone's experience has been. Um, at Berkeley, there's no expectation for someone to take a gap year. However, um, perspective um, that students bring if they have had a gap year um, tends to show uh, through the different application documents that someone submits. How long does it take you on average? I was probably one of the slower readers um, because I just, I really wanted to get a sense of a feel for a person. Um, at Berkeley, every single application is read. There's no um, presumptive numbers above which anybody is guaranteed admission. There's no number below which... Uh, applications aren't read. Every single application is read. And so um, I probably spent more time than was really necessary. But, you know, I'd worked at three other law schools before I went to Berkeley. And Berkeley was the first top 10 law school I ever worked at. And so for me, some of these candidates were just phenomenal. All of them are. Um, and so trying to take off the hat of the other three law schools and now be in this top 10 setting um, and, and understanding that there's going to be a lot of really incredible candidates that we're not going to be able to offer admission to. Um, it becomes a lot more selective. And I just felt like I needed to think about it more um, and be really thoughtful in it. You know, some people say they can read an application in 10 minutes um, or less. The Berkeley application is really long. Um, and so I definitely wasn't doing it that quickly. Um, but there are a lot of applications to get through. Um, I, I don't even think there is an average time for me because I would take a long time. <laughs> Sometimes I would actually save people and go back and read again um, because I just wanted to see if my initial feelings were the same. You guys can't see this because it's a podcast, but Tahira is sitting next to a pile of applications from 2017 <laughs> that she just hasn't gotten to yet. Right. Oh, man. Yeah, those personal statements are killer. They're long. They're long. But I like it. I like that um, Berkeley stresses the personal statement because they don't have an interview process. It really allows a student to have more space and more opportunity to share um, and to let us get to know them on a deeper level than they can get usually in two pages. So I'm going to ask you a question that sounds stupid, but I don't know how else to put this. I mean, why do you want to get to know the student? In a sense, who cares? Like, yeah. you can't admit everyone that you get to know. So, and, and I imagine it's not just based on who you like. Mm -hmm. You're not saying, oh, I like this person as a, as a human, mm -hmm. so I want to admit him. Or maybe it is. I mean, really, why does it matter? Um, and what are you looking for exactly in a personal statement? Yeah. And, and the hard part is we're not looking necessarily for anything specific. Um, there's no checklist. There's not um, any specific characteristic we're looking for. Um, one of the kind of rubrics that we would often use is, is this someone that you would want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with to learn more. Um, and I think that plays into the whole thought of, can you see them on our campus? Can you see them contributing to our community? Do they um, seem like they're ready? 
I think readiness is a big piece of it, knowing how hard law school is. Um, Typically in writing, you can see a level of maturity. Um, You can get a sense of what, what it is that they're after, even if they don't know what area of law they want to practice in. Um, they have a sense of self, um, and, and what does that look like? You know, um, at, at Berkeley, it's not like, you know, they're filling a class of 300 students that they only admit 300, right? Um, they're still going to end up admitting about a thousand students to get to that 300 because there's something that we call melt, um, which means that students will ultimately decide to go elsewhere. And typically that happens over the summer. So it's a quippy little way to say people melt away. Um, but, you know, out of anywhere between five or six, or maybe this year it'll be 7,000 applications, you know, getting to that 1,000, is it someone that you can see engaging the faculty? Is it someone that you can see getting involved in the student orgs or taking advantage of the different uh, research centers and institutes? Um, How do you see, um, you know, their education playing out for them here? Are they going to take advantage of what's available to them? Um, Do they see within their application, do they recognize and point out areas where they think they need work? Um, Are they honest? You know, there are times when you review an application and people, I think, don't think we take the time to like read through a transcript. But not only do we read through it, we look at kind of what kinds of classes people are taking. Do they end up going into the advanced levels of those classes? Do they have their final semester where they're looking at like golf and the history of Harry Potter or are they really pushing it all the way through? And if they had a semester or a time when things dipped, sometimes from the transcript, we can tell what that is, but we don't want to make assumptions. The students who give us all of the information and leave us without any questions tend to fare better than those that kind of hide the ball a little bit. Um, So Berkeley gives the page space for people to be able to do that. I personally would want to admit someone who's looking into the history of Harry Potter, (laughs) but maybe that's just an issue of taste. (laughs) Well, when given the opportunity to take that or to take something within their major that challenges them a little bit more, I think that's really the question. The history of Harry Potter might be actually a really interesting class, um, but, you know, it's just an example. <laughs> I know, I know. Did you really want people to write four pages? Yeah. Um, it's it's something that Berkeley puts right on the website. Um, their preference is that people take the time and put in the additional effort to write a longer statement, um, to be thoughtful about what they're sending in. I think the big no-no is if the school is saying, write four pages, don't write a page and a half. Um, If you're on three pages, is that okay? Absolutely. Um, If you do it really well in two pages, is that okay? Yes, they admit people with two-page personal statements. But they want to feel like um, like students are making an effort to send them something that's specifically for them. Um, and so when it feels really generic um, and it feels like this was probably sent to every other school, You know, when they can only take a fifth of their applicants, um, was that the way to go? Does the quality of the writing itself matter? Because you talked about a lot of things, but that wasn't something you mentioned so far. Yes. Quality of writing is something that we look for in every single document. So 
Um, we look at the resume very critically. Um, even the LSAT writing sample is something that we take the time to read. Um, not all schools do, um, but sometimes that can tell us a little bit more about someone's writing than a personal statement or an addendum or a diversity statement, which has had the opportunity to be edited and looked at by um, by the student themselves, by others. And so the writing sample is just kind of a very raw um, piece of someone's writing. And that tells us a lot. And what's the output of all of this evaluation? Do you write a paragraph summary of the student? Are you checking off one of five boxes? Are you just making a recommendation? Literally just making a recommendation. There's no notes. So when the dean does his or her audit, the dean is not basing it off of what you said. They're just doing a fresh read. Mm -hmm. Fresh read. Okay. My next question is about the diversity statement. And this is specific to Berkeley, but Berkeley seems to have a very big tent uh, for their personal statement. They sort of invite you to talk about your background, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess what else is there to say in your diversity statement? Or should you hold back and save something for the DS? Um, I always look at it as perspective. What perspective are you going to bring uh, to campus? Um, because that's something that's uniquely yours. So what played into that perspective? Is it your background? Um, is it an experience that you had? Is it your childhood? Um, what is it that's going to bring something to the classroom um, that will be different? And I really like to see diversity statements um, because I like the fact that someone has taken the time to reflect and think about what it is that makes their perspective different. Um, what has, you know, kind of been a piece of them that aggregated into who they are. Um, and that I think is, is something that um, I'm always looking for. My next question is about the why Berkeley. Mm. I just feel like if you ask for a compliment, you're going to get a compliment. So mm. how do you distinguish the good ones or the ones that feel genuine? Yeah. Well, the ones that feel like someone copied and pasted off the website are not good Why Berkeley statements. It's really more about how that student sees themselves fitting on campus. What is it that has resonated with them so far? Have they come to campus and had an experience? Did they sit in and on a class? Did they attend an open house? Um, has there been research done by a faculty member or an institute that really resonates with them? Or is there um, a specific program or clinic or class that they picture themselves doing um, that means something to them? If there's a way for them to connect um, something that Berkeley offers with something that actually means something to them um, or an experience that they had, I think that makes it a really strong statement. It's the ones where we can see like, you know, um, and I tell you this to, to clients, you know, they know what they offer. So it's about what it is that you're connecting with and why it's important to you that they want to get out of you when it's a why, why this school statement. One more question about Berkeley's app. Mm -hmm. Does the standardized test addendum ever make a difference? I think it does. Um, and I like for Berkeley, they allow students to actually upload previous standardized tests to show like this is an issue for me. Um, if you say, you know, I had issues with the SAT or the ACT, you can um, upload your college board report and show um, like this was my score, but this is my GPA from undergrad. And obviously, I was able to um, exceed 
you know, what maybe people expected of me and perform strong. Um, similarly, you know, then you can say, like, I may have an issue with standardized testing. However, I can point to my performance and, and say X, Y, and Z. Um, if it's a, a standardized test um, essay and it just kind of says, you know, um, I did my best. <laughs> That's great. Um, but, but we need more substance behind it. You know, there are folks who will say, oh, well, you know, I, I took it, but I was sick or I was grieving or whatever the case. And I retook it. Um, and so this new score is, um, more directly linked to where I think I am as a student, I think that matters, you know, um, having context is typically a good thing. Um, the more that we understand how these scores kind of came to be, you know, was there something distracting that was happening? I know the first time I took the LSAT, um, someone disappeared at the break and the proctors waited and waited and waited. And to the point where like girls next to me were crying, like anxiety was super high. Um, I think between my first test and my second, there was a seven or eight point difference. And so I wrote that addendum to say like, this is what happened the first time. I went to a completely different site the second time because I was worried I'd get the same proctors and have another issue. Um, but I pointed to what I did differently in my study, what was different about the circumstances, and why that higher score was more relevant. Tahira, you have told me before that you have rejected multiple applicants with 180s. Mm -hmm. What would make you reject somebody with such a high score? Well, um, when it comes to admissions, especially at um, a top law school, um, you have this giant pool of qualified candidates. Some of them have perfect scores, but a perfect score doesn't necessarily mean that they're a perfect fit. And so as an admissions officer, part of what you're doing is you're trying to see again, you know, is this someone that I can see on campus contributing? Um, is this someone I would want to sit down and have coffee with? Is this someone who actually sees themselves coming here? And sometimes from the documents, you can tell that it's not their first choice. Or, you know, um, that this might be the school that the student is using because they're hoping to get a good scholarship offer and then use our offer to negotiate with the next school. Um, and students may not realize it, but sometimes it's right there in, in what they've written. And they tell on themselves a little bit. Um, sometimes students with really, really high scores don't think that they need to take the extra steps and make the extra effort. But when you have 6,000 applications and you can see that you are the first choice for other strong candidates, and then you have someone who maybe wrote a page and a half personal statement, and yes, they have perfect scores, but you really don't feel like you got to know them, that might not be the sure thing. So I always kind of assumed that if you have a really high score, you're basically playing defense. You just want to, you know, don't screw up. And it sounds like maybe it's a little more than that. You still have to make an effort mm -hmm. to show Berkeley that you care and that you're into them specifically. Yeah. And I think that's true for all of the T14. You know, um, when you receive that kind of volume of applications, you have the luxury of being really selective. 
And so the, the schools are going to pick those folks that they feel are a really great fit, that are going to contribute something important to the community that they can see in their classrooms, that they can see engaging faculty, um, that they can see really utilizing and, and engaging with the programs that they offer. Um, and so, and the hard part is, you know, there's so many really wonderful students. Um, unfortunately, you know, like that's the hardest part and that's the part that I struggled with. We can't take all of them. And that's why I would take extra time on applications because I just needed to be really, really sure that every single person that I recommended admit that I would go to bat for them. You said that sometimes students told on themselves, you mm -hmm. could tell that they were applying to Berkeley possibly as leverage mm -hmm. for a scholarship negotiation for another school. Let's talk about scholarship negotiations. Yeah. So before that, how do you award the initial scholarship offers? Mm -hmm. So the initial awards um, are merit-based awards. It, so Berkeley has both merit-based and need-based um, awarding. Typically, the merit-based awards are made before need-based consideration is done just because additional information needs to be collected from admitted students. And the goal um, in the office has been to get at least an initial award out. Um, and if we need to increase for need or other things, then we'll do that later. Um, I think they may have made adjustments to it this year. I think they're trying to get awards out a little bit earlier, even than when I was there. Um, but that's only a good thing. And it's meant to be competitive. Does based on merit mean that it's exclusively based on LSAT score and GPA? LSAT score, GPA, I would say um, we looked closely at the Y Berkeley statement. Um, obviously, that's an optional statement, but if you're hearing this and thinking about applying to Berkeley, pretend that it's required and just write the statement. <laughs> um, but we would look at everything, um, everything within the application and remember that um, diversity is not something that's considered within the admissions process. Um, it's not something that is considered within the scholarship process. Um, there is, you know, Proposition 209 is in place in California and that affects a school's um, process when it comes to admission. So they can't consider those things specifically. So even though the application asks for your demographic information, when an admissions officer is reviewing the file, all of that information is blank. So the only way they even know you're diverse is if you wrote a diversity statement. Okay, so how do you ask for more money? Mm -hmm. and, and, and what is that based on? Is, is it like, hey, if you don't give me more money, I'm going somewhere else? Or is it like, can you give me more money because I really, really need it? We've gotten both. <laughs> um, and so Berkeley has a very formal process. Um, it's called reconsideration. Every admitted student, um, once they get access to the admitted student portal, there's information on the entire process on the portal. Um, basically, it opens up typically on March 20th, and it goes until May 1st. And so during that time, candidates can email in, and basically they make an ask. Um, and Berkeley's policy is you can only make one ask. So be intentional about the timing of your email. Um, within the email, you need to say, you know, your reasons for requesting an increase, or if you didn't receive an initial award, your reasons for requesting an award. Um, and that can be need, it can be any number of things. Um, most of the time, it's because they've received offers from other schools that they feel um, are more generous um, when it comes to, you know, how everything is communicated. 
that weighs into the decision that admissions officers make or or that I made um, when in this role. Um, it weighs into, you know, how seriously we take a request. Um, it weighs into whether we think this particular applicant actually does want to come to Berkeley. Some students are very honest and they tell us outright, Berkeley's not my first choice, but it could be if you give me <laughs> X amount of money. That's not a good tactic, by the way, um, but people use it. Um, I appreciate the honesty, but you're probably, if I were there, you probably wouldn't have gotten any money. Um, <laughs> um with reconsideration requests, you include the amount that you're asking for, why you're asking for that amount. Um, you attach any offers um, that you receive from other schools that you're comparing your offer from Berkeley to. You give deadline dates for when you hope to have an answer on your reconsideration request. Um, though I wanna be clear, Though you can put a deadline date, um, typically there is one person managing reconsideration requests for the entire admitted student body, and they will try their best. I used to keep crazy notes on deadlines for every student and um, just feverishly work to get through as many requests as I could. Um, but during reconsideration, there are LSAT and GPA goals that I have to meet. There are budget constraints. Um, and unfortunately, I can't say yes to everybody. And so we would receive well over 400 requests. Um, and typically, we would be able to grant some sort of aid to half. So it's not a huge number of people. And even with those reconsideration requests, it's not typically going to be a huge addition. Um, Berkeley would love, I think, to be able to give a bunch of really huge awards, um, but it is a state school. Um, it's public. It doesn't have a giant endowment. And so on average, students receiving aid, the average award is $25,000, which is about half tuition. If you're deciding how much to ask for, mm -hmm. should you go for a big number in the hopes that you'll meet me halfway? Or should you ask for something more modest? I mean, what's the optimal strategy? Um... I tended to gravitate toward the requests that I thought were reasonable. <laughs> um, I did have people say, hey, I would like to receive $90,000 a year, understanding that at the time tuition was only $53,000 a year um, and they can't go over tuition. <laughs> so um, not possible. Um, but... If I saw that there was a student who had very clearly thought it through, they looked at, you know, this other school and what they offered and said, hey, you know, I think it would be reasonable if you could come up to this number. Um, and it made sense. You know, there were times where we would give an award that was equal to that of another school that was higher ranked. Um, and students would say, well, they're higher ranked, so you should give me more because you want me to come to your school. The hard part was that higher ranked school also costs ten to $12,000 more. And so it wasn't an apples to apples comparison. And we probably didn't grant that request. Um, if there was a compromise that we thought was fair, we may meet someone kind of in the middle. Um, it wasn't really a practice of ours to, I think in years past, there was a practice to try to match 
um, other schools. And that's no longer the case. They're not looking to match the award from somewhere else. They're looking to find what a reasonable reasonable amount would be um, for someone with these different offers and these different things to consider. So what are the takeaways for students who are negotiating aid? It sounds like maybe one of them is don't try to play hardball. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not going to be successful. (laughs) Um, I would say the biggest takeaways are, you know, to make sure, number one, that you're providing all of the information that was requested. If the request is incomplete, there's probably not going to be any movement on that. Um, If the person um, is, is weighing the tuition or cost of attendance between schools um, and the award is the same in cost. Um, Make sure that you're looking at cost of attendance. Sometimes we forget that piece. And, you know, as the admissions officer, I look at everything. So I'm going to pull up that school's information and see, like, okay, is our cost of attendance pretty equal? Is ours higher because of where we're located? Is ours lower? Um, Do those things factor in? What else is there? You know, um, is there something here that I know that I can connect you to um, if I don't have the funds, if, if there is an opportunity to have you be listed as a scholar or connected with a specific faculty member or, or things like that, I look at everything. Um, I look at diversity when it comes to, um, a student of color who's applying to a school that is notorious for not having a diverse Um, group, I might connect them with our affinity group so they get a sense of what Berkeley can offer them as far as representation in numbers um, that maybe they can't get somewhere else. It's always about what we can do. Um, And so those are what, what I would say are some of the big takeaways. The others I would say don't make an outlandish request. Um, if you're asking for something that's more than tuition, it's outlandish because they can't do it. Um, if you put in the math that you did, I won't say that that gets you points, but it lets people know that you actually thought about cost of attendance, that you thought about tuition, that you thought about how all the different factors weigh in. Um, If you have kind of emergent needs or things that you weren't considering before or, you know, if you're relocating and you're trying to make sense of everything, just be honest in your request. Um, It doesn't have to be some super long um, essay. It's really just about communicating what your needs are. Um, You know, there are students that are also helping to take care of family and they'll include, you know, medical bills or whatever the case may be, things that they're facing that are their reality. Um, At least it gives the person managing reconsideration the opportunity to consider if you supply them with the information. Tahira, I know that you did a lot of work to try to increase diversity at the schools where you worked. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips that are specific for students of color or minority applicants? I would say, you know, a lot of times there are students who avoid the diversity statement and instead think, okay, well, I can be like really in your face in the personal statement and then I don't have to do the other one. Um, And I'm going to tell you for schools that allow both statements, I think you should write both statements. I think you should look at the application as an opportunity to 
let people really get to know who you are and what you're about. And each piece of the application is like a piece of a puzzle. The more puzzle pieces you're able to submit, the clearer the picture becomes. All of these different pieces can be done in a way that's thoughtful and they like play on each other. So your personal statement might talk about your experience or what's leading you to law. And then that diversity statement might delve deeper into one piece of your experience or how you see things in that experience because of your background or who you are or what you're about. Um, All of these things can add extra layers. And so I, I like for people to take that opportunity because sometimes when you choose not to write the statements, it's a missed opportunity. Um, at Berkeley, you know, if someone never mentions anything about, you know, their background or why Berkeley, um, it's definitely missed opportunities because we just don't know that much about you. And if we don't know much about you, it's hard to say yes. Um, that might land you on the wait list, or it might be that you need to consider reapplying the next year. Um, and so, you know, take every opportunity you can to show the schools that um, are your priority that they were worth the effort. Okay. Can we do a lightning round for the end? Sure. I just have two questions. Yeah, yeah, okay. go for it. First lightning round question. For anyone applying right now, what's the biggest no-no? Biggest no-no. Um, <laughs> I used to do a whole workshop on do's and don'ts. Um, one of my biggest don'ts is, well, I'm going to give two because there's, there's several. Um, but my first one is don't use a quote unless it actually is relevant and means something to you. And if it was like your mantra um, in your family or a song that you sang together or something, that's great. But Aristotle or Plutarch, you know, don't do it. Um, It doesn't add anything. And honestly, it takes away page space from what we really want, which is to learn about you. Um, The second don't would be avoid, um, avoid sharing, oversharing. Um, (laughs) there are students that, um, give a little TMI and, um, we end up learning things about some students that we never actually needed to know ever in life. Um, and just as a, for instance, um, I read an application once where I learned that that candidate was a very proficient lover. That's something I never (laughs) needed to know. Uh, But, you know, like think about, is this something that I would say directly to their face if I was in a one-on-one meeting with them? And if it's not, leave it out. Okay, second lightning round question. Biggest yes, yes. Biggest yes, yes. If you have to do personal statements where you are personalizing to each school in the personal statements. The biggest yes is make sure that you are sure that you're submitting it to the right school. Save each one with different headings. Make sure that you're paying attention to what you're doing. Um, We get it all the time. When I was at Loyola in New Orleans, I used to always get statements that said, I can't wait to be a tiger. And that's LSU's law school, not Loyola's. Um, And so just those little pieces that don't really feel like a lot of effort really do make a difference because when the wrong one comes through, that dings you um, because schools are looking to judgment. They're looking to, did you actually take the time into your application? Um, So that's a huge yes for me when it's when it's the right school (laughs) it's a shame but it is 
All right, last question, Tahira. I understand that you are in the middle of book edits. Yes. I'm wondering if you want to share anything about <laughs> what we can expect. Oh gosh, yes.、Um, it's still going to be a while. My debut novel、um, is coming out in early 2022, and it's a rom com、um, featuring a plus size heroine. And she is kind of adjusting her attitude and falling in love, and I'm really excited about it. It's called Savvy Sheldon's Feeling Good as Hell, and it's coming out through Mira Books, which is a part of Harlequin HarperCollins. We'll look out for it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I had a blast. Me too. <laughs> Hi, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode useful. As always, you can reach out to us for more help with your applications on sevensage.com/emissions. See you next time.